Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders network. Featuring Starship Sofa and Far-Fetched Fables, everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night. Welcome to Tales to Terrify's third of four episodes showcasing this year's Bram Stoker Award nominees for short fiction. This is typically the part where I say, but before we get to the stories, and I talk about movies I've seen or books that I've read that I think might be of interest to you. Today, that's not really going to happen. I've been pretty busy with work and school, so I haven't had much time for leisure reading, let alone reading horror specifically. I did attend an advanced screening of The Survivalist, directed by Stephen Fingleton. There are horrific things that happen in it, but I don't think that it counts as horror. It's post-apocalyptic and filmed near Antrim in Northern Ireland, where my Irish ancestors are from. If you're interested in seeing a brutal film, check out The Survivalist. Oh, and I don't feel ashamed to admit that I love Tom Cruise and Russell Crowe, but 1932's The Mummy, with Boris Karloff and Zita Johan, was horror, then remade or rebooted. I don't remember what we were calling it then with Brendan Fraser, and it was an okay movie, but a bit of a stretch to call it horror. And now we've got The Mummy again. The trailer made it look like it's more of an action film than anything else. By the time this errors, the movie will have been out for a week, and I'll probably not have had time to go see it. If you did, leave a comment on Facebook for this episode. How did it go? Maybe next week I'll have more podcast news or horror movies to ramble on about, but this week let's just get on to our Stoker-nominated story. Our story comes to us from Lisa Manetti. We've heard from Lisa before back in episode 141, and it was also for a Stoker-nominated story. A bit about her. Lisa Manetti's debut novel, The Gentling Box, garnered a Bram Stoker Award, and she has been nominated five times for the prominent award in both the short and long fiction categories. Her story, Everybody Wins, was made into a short film, and her novella, Dissolution, will soon be a feature-length film directed by Paul Layden. 
Recent short stories include Esmeralda's Stocking in Never Fear, Christmas Terrors, Resurgam in Zombies, More Recent Dead, edited by Paula Gurin, The Hermit in Never Fear, The Tarot, and Arbrett McFray in Gutted, Beautiful Horror Stories. Her work, including The Gentling Box and 1925 A Fall River Halloween, and The Box Jumper, has been translated into Italian. Her most recent published, longer work, The Box Jumper, a novella about Houdini, was not only been nominated for a 2015 Bram Stoker Award and the prestigious Shirley Jackson Award, it won the Novella of the Year Award from This is Horror in the UK. She has also authored The New Adventures of Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn, two companion novellas in her collection, Death Watch, a macabre gag book, 51 Fiendish Ways to Leave Your Lover, as well as nonfiction books and numerous articles and short stories in newspapers, magazines, and anthologies. Forthcoming works include Apocalypse Then in Never Fear, The Apocalypse, several other short stories, and a dark novel about the Dial Painter tragedy in the post-World War I era, Radium Girl. Lisa lives in New York in the 100-year-old house she originally grew up in with two wily, mostly black, twin cats named Harry and Theo Houdini. Listen with me to Lisa Manetti's Stoker-nominated Arret Macht Frey. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. The women were begging for a little water or a piece of bread. Vuda, Chleb. Two words identified them as Russian. We had heard that so often we knew bread and water in all the languages of Europe. Olga Lengiel. I had orders to use only the absolute minimum of paper bandages when dressing the wounds of the poor victims of the dog's fangs and others who had been beaten into unconsciousness. Judith Sternberg Newman. Don't save him, one of them said. You'll only be prolonging the agony. And you can see for yourself he wanted to escape it now, instead of waiting for the firing squad in a few weeks. Dr. Miklos Niesli. Arbeit macht frei. By Lisa Manetti. The last thing I remember, 
I knew the Red Cross clerk probably meant just before or just after the camp I was in. Valdemar, the Nazis called it, was liberated by the Americans. But so much had happened to me, had happened to the last living member of my family, my mother, Kajia, that I thought I'd better start at the beginning. Isn't that the way of it with every important tale? Iligia, my mother had always told me, especially when I was being headstrong, or she was urging me to be calm, to be brave. Your name means choice. She drilled into me that one could always choose the high road, that it was always best, and that it carried meaning, no matter what happened in the end. So I chose the beginning. And the clerk, a kindly, patient woman with upswept brown hair, let me talk. The talk, and what I would tell her, would be the last thing I knew that I would ever choose. The high road, at last. We, my mother and I, were taken in Warsaw, the very end of July, 1944, just before the uprising, I began. Like all Polish youngsters, long before it happened, I dreamt of the thunderous rattle of Gestapo boots on the stairs. In the dream, I would hear that hurried tramp, that deadly cadence punctuated by brutish knocking and furious shouts, the unstoppable, upwelling fear of what was about to happen cleaved me instantly awake. In the dark, my heart thudding in my chest, I was aware the dream was no portent, only the playing out of knowing what would inevitably come. We all knew, heard, saw it happen a hundred times to neighbors and friends and strangers. It was hot that night, I said. The heat should have stifled the noise, but with the windows open it seemed like that angry leather stamping was coming from everywhere at the same time. Perhaps that hideous deafening echo was ubiquitous. The stormtroopers might be raiding every floor of the building at once, simultaneously invading the crumbling apartments next door and across the street and down the block. We were both hidden inside the old wooden armoire that had been her wedding gift from my father. When the noise reached her bedroom, just before they flung open the door, I felt time being sucked away in both the mounting tension and the certainty of discovery. My mother didn't flinch when I dug my fingers into her narrow wrist. She only stiffened and, her head hanging down, bit her lower lip to keep from crying out. Sounds of chaos, the desk chair kicked aside, the bed hastily thrust up and smashing against the wall. A red glass votive candle in front of the statue of Mary shattering on the floor, flames licking what was left of the dusty curtains. The cupboard door handle finally wrenched open. More shouts. Then the pain of abrasions from floors and carpets, of being pushed and pulled and dragged down three flights to face more loaded rifles on the sidewalk. I looked up and saw dark gray smoke roiling out from my mother's bedroom window. My father, a doctor, had been gone from us for almost five years, and I wondered if I would ever see him again. Night bled sights and sounds of confusion, the crunching of rifle butts against bellies and faces, gunshots, screams, the whole ragged crowd, teenage boys and middle-aged women and crying children, whipped and harried by shouts and the shrill barking of infuriated dogs, all of us bullied to the train depot. We'd heard that the Germans forced the Hungarians, the gypsies, 
and God knew how many others, to march hundreds of kilometers all the way from Budapest to one of the camps in Germany, so that for me, a naive and somewhat rebellious and definitely angry 14-year-old, seeing the ailing wooden boxcar was something of a relief. Stella Johansson, the Red Cross clerk, had certainly heard about those first insults to the mind and spirit, the callous insanity of cramming eighty, ninety, a hundred or more humans into each car so that there was no room to sit or lie down, no food or water given to us, and she put a consoling hand over mine when I told her how the living were forced to stand and tread upon the dying and the dead. The selection was at the ramp at Valdemar. Everyone, by this juncture, knew about the selection process, a bored doctor tipping his finger toward one direction or another. Left, off you went to the gas chambers and the crematoria. Right, a brief respite in hell that included starvation, lice, typhus, and being worked to death, the real true respite. Only this time there were brief, whispered words between the doctor, Victor Freisler, whom I'd come to know, and an Unterstundführer, who barked, Any doctors here? Nurses? Medical trainees? Orderlies? Here, my mother called out, I'm a nurse, sir she said, at the same time she snagged my left arm, adding, And my daughter, she's sixteen, and she worked as an aide in the Catholic hospital, too. Where no doubt you both hid Jews smuggled out of the ghetto, he said. My mother kept silent. He looked me over. Sixteen? She doesn't look sixteen. I was tall for my age, but I didn't think I could pass for sixteen. It's the war, sir, my mother put in. The privations. Doesn't she speak? How old are you, Gnadiges Fräulein? His words were gracious. His voice was a sneer. Sixteen. Even to my own ears, my voice sounded hopelessly childish, but he let it pass and my mother and I stood in a clump of three or four people in the dirt road by the boxcars, while the multitudes marched away, left and right, to death or death in life. The sign over the camp gate, like the ones at Auschwitz and Dachau, read, Ach, beid macht frei. Work sets you free, my mother whispered, then I saw her make a tiny cross of her thumb and forefinger and kiss it quickly, as if haste and secrecy would fulfill the intent of her silent prayer. There were no real medications in the hospital, I said, swallowing a lump that had risen uncomfortably in my throat. For now I was on safe ground, but how much was I going to tell this Swedish clerk with the paper name tag and the kind blue eyes? Coming to the hospital could be a death sentence in itself, I said. She nodded. She knew. Every now and then word would come down that, for example, there were too many tuberculosis patients in the camp, and all of those currently in bed would be sent to the gas chambers to make way, ironically, for new TB victims. I shrugged. Nazi logic was a contradiction, like exact estimate or open secret, my mother used to say. Our lot was only a little better than that of the other inmates, but it was better, at least in some ways, we weren't crammed seven or more to a bunk meant for two. 
We didn't have to wait online to use the common latrines, where those who had, say, dysentery accidentally soiled themselves and then were shot for sport that masqueraded as punishment. I paused. So things were better, mostly, but some things were not. Some things were harder. Canada was the root, of course, the solution, the salvation, and the problem. Canada was the building and its outskirts where, under SS guards, inmates sorted through the vast array of belongings taken from those arriving on the trains. It's almost impossible to describe the house-high heaps of suitcases, clothes, shoes, the mountains of spectacles, or Jewish prayer books, or felt hats alone, could each have filled an Olympic pool. Anything could be and was found by inmates who not only catalogued and heaped up the valuables and the dross from all Europe, but were taught to rummage and snip linings in coats, hidden pockets in books and valises. It was all there. Jewels, money, photographs, candlesticks, pacifiers, toys, rings, bracelets, mezuzo, meant to bless now-empty Jewish homes, necklaces, brooches, and the food I thought instantly feeling saliva womb my tongue. Inmates in just about every lager were fed a five to seven hundred calorie per day diet that consisted of watery ersatz coffee, a few ounces of bread, often moldy, and plumped with sawdust, soup enhanced with weeds and nettles, and surprises like mice or insects. Two or three times a week, the bread was daubed with a smear of margarine or sugar beet jam. Once or twice a week, a thin slice of derelict sausage was handed round. Nobody bothered to chalk the day's special on a blackboard like a Viennese café on the Strauchgasse. That was for sure. Food haunted us not just recollecting ordinary table fare or while dreaming of banquets, though of course it permeated those atmospheres, but during every waking moment. Starvation turned us into ravening animals, just like wealthy, cynical John Slake says in that old primary school story, Elementals, by Stephen Vincent Benet. Love almost never triumphed. People would, and did, snarl, fight, and kill for a crust of trampled, mud-covered bread, or a rotting potato hidden in a latrine bucket. So Canada created a huge, thriving black market, not just for the food smuggled out, but for everything, anything since all this bounty was supposed to go to the Reich, technically the SS posted to Canada were stealing, which meant that on a very small scale they overlooked what inmates pilfered, or they made deals with their favorites that went more or less like this. You find me five high-quality diamonds or twenty-five natural pearls, I'll pretend that the wool coat with its pockets stuffed with who knows what, is yours, and it didn't arrive by transport, because you've been wearing it since you left Minsk. There were endless permutations of these deals and bargains, because everything had a price. A pitcher of water, a bottle of iodine, a neck scarf, a pair of socks, a can of sardines, a slice of fatty, tinned sourbrotten, a cigarette, a puff on a cigarette. Stealing from the Reich was called organization by the prisoners. No one considered it a moral lapse because it was all stolen from us, from the displaced, brutalized deportees, to begin with anyway. 
More importantly, to use Nazi doublespeak, this reallocation of goods saved lives. The camera that became rayon underwear, that became aspirin, that became half a foil-wrapped marzipanstollen, the traditional cake embedded with dried fruit and dusted with powdered sugar, saved lives. It really did. Canada, I told Miss Johansen, who'd left off scribbling down clerical notes some time before, gave the inmates a tiny, no infinitesimal chance. What could we have bartered otherwise? Dirty, vermin-infested striped smocks? Broken, heelless boots? I shook my head. The plunder from Canada meant you might have your morale lifted to the point where you could have a ragged form of hope. Maybe for one whole day you didn't think about running into the wires of the electric fence or volunteering for the gas chamber. I caught her glance, and she looked away, but she kept listening. A pair of moth-eaten gloves might mean your hands after working ten hours in sub-freezing temperatures to dig grave trenches while the capos and the guards whipped, beat, or shot slowpokes were saved from frostbite that led to infection, that led to amputation, generally without anesthesia. So yes, Canada saved us from many a worse hell. It also bred the worst kind of corruption. In the hospital we had access, such as it was, to medical supplies and services so scant as to be near non-existent. It corrupted some of us, I said. A tiny vial of gentian violet for fungus got you 500 gold marks. Or better still, for an inmate who knew which guards could be bribed, a half kilo of meat. Sneak it, Ludvika whispered under her breath. We were in the supply room, a name that might have been a laughable irony a few weeks ago, when it mostly consisted of tottering empty shelves, a few bandages, and a cracked beaker labeled sterile water to wash out the very worst wounds. Applied with a dropper, the water served to briefly scatter flies drawn to purulence and rot. But the infirmary had changed when Dr. Victor Freisle, he who'd formerly been in charge of selections, was ordered by someone to conduct a few autopsies here and there. Someone, Himmler, Hus, Mengele, wanted to know the precise mechanism by which starvation and dysentery killed prisoners. Maybe to speed the death process here and at the other camps, Freisle, perhaps remembering real hospital work before the war, and with a certain amount of ego and pride connected to his new duties, commandeered enough instruments and drugs so that the infirmary was now suddenly on a par with the kind of first-aid station you might have found at a resort or a beach in those liberal, carefree years before the war. "'Do you want him to kiss you or not?' Ludy said. "'Well,' I hesitated. "'It's nothing to me, Miss Sweet Sixteen, and never been kissed,' she said with the loftiness I assumed came from the adulthood conferred by her eighteen years, most of which she'd spent in chic pre-war Berlin. My hand stole out toward the bottle marked morphine tablets, my fingertips just about to graze the cool glass. Isn't this collaborating? She shrugged. It's what's in your heart that counts. Do you think I cared when my eaten-up old aunts and uncles or spiteful cousins told me it was wrong to dance with Nazis in the supper clubs? Nazis. They're filthy. She made a spitting gesture. But so what? You can hate them. I did. 
but a smile and a wink, and then I had pretty clothes and champagne instead of rags and piss water. There was something wrong with her logic, I knew, because after all, Ludy was here in Valdemar. Who is going to miss two lousy quarter-grain tablets of morphine? Ludy said. They count them. My mother counts them. She flapped a hand. So big deal. The head nurse counted wrong. I was shaking my head. She grabbed my shoulders. Listen, don't be a fool. Haven't you seen what she does? I must have looked blank for a moment because she cut in with, To the new babies. Her right hand gripped tighter. To save the mothers. Ludy meant to jar me out of my days. Instead, even then, I sank deeper. Am I the first to tell you this? I mean about the mothers and babies. I tried to look into Stella Johansson's eyes, but my lids kept fluttering and finally I turned away. I was leaning over the makeshift desk, staring down at my fingers, playing nervously with, of all things, a hook-shaped bobby pin that must have fallen from her upswept hair. Ludy wore her hair like that, I recalled. In all that misery and filth somehow, maybe by contrast, she managed to look glamorous. It's all right, Stella said. Go ahead. But that didn't tell me whether she already knew. The mothers, you see, I paused. The Germans had a rule. When the babies were born, when the babies lived, the mothers had to die. She nodded. No hint again, but I went on anyway. I don't really understand why. I mean, was it supposed to be a punishment? She said nothing. At any rate, I found out that some of the nurses... They were giving the babies morphine and saying they were stillborn. It was to save the mothers. The Germans were expert at turning ordinary people into murderers. But it was to save the mothers. They were weak from childbirth, and they were thrown into the ovens while they were still alive, burned alive, unless their babies... I stopped. That's what Ludy told me, but I didn't believe it. And certainly not about my mother. A nurse, a healer. Not for a long time. I was too frightened to believe it. Afraid the Nazis might kill the infirmary workers, the nurses, if they knew. Maybe it was wrong, I told Stella Johansson. But you could eat better, dress better, live better if you had a boyfriend, or several. Ludy did, at least. While the rest of us were raking out clumps of hair, whatever had grown back after they shaved our heads, when we combed with our fingers, hers looked, looked almost sleek. She pinned it up when she met one of her boyfriends. She had a red dress for dates. She had a lipstick. Max Factor Clear Red, Ludy said. Just like Hollywood, just like Rita Hayworth and Maureen O'Hara. She pouted her lips and the golden lipstick tube flashed. Hold the mirror steady, would you? And stop moving it. It's small enough already. We were in the supply room again, and she positioned my wrist as I gripped the silvery metal handle of a tiny mirrored dental instrument. I don't know why, I said aloud to Stella Johansson. I didn't think about all those poor people, about how the Nazis yanked their teeth to extract the gold. Millions of teeth. I tried never to look at the mountains of teeth, the heaped-up tons of hair when I went past Canada. 
It hurt to look at them. It hurt because you couldn't help thinking about the millions of people. It hurt because you were scared of losing hair, of losing teeth. Didn't we suffer enough? Did we have to be ugly too? You turn people into shambling scarecrows. They're not people anymore, Stella said. You wouldn't hesitate to hang or shoot a scarecrow or throw it in a ditch when you were done with it. It wouldn't bother you to burn a man's shape you no longer considered a man. Or a woman or a child. She nodded. Maybe it was wrong, but I wanted to keep my... my woman shape. Maybe because I was fourteen and never had the chance to be a woman. Because of the war, really. I never had a grown-up party dress or went to a dance... All the things in normal times I could have looked forward to in the next year or two. And Ludi, everyone really, they all thought I was sixteen. And then it was coming up to April 17th, my fifteenth birthday. Ludi, everyone thought I'd turned seventeen. Everyone except Kajia. Yes, everyone except my mother, I agreed. You're seventeen on the seventeenth, Ludi said. That's really something special, and we're going to celebrate. What? How? I kept thinking about how, in general, those of us working in the hospital infirmary lived a little better, but still, I'd lost so much weight I had no breasts to speak of. For at least two or three years, I'd looked forward to wearing a bra. And now I was fifteen and had the nubbins you'd see on a ten-year-old child. I'd had one period, my first, back in June. But like most women in the camp, my menses had dried up. My mother said they put something in the food. She didn't know what. And that was why the only pregnant women were the ones that had just arrived on the damn indefatigable trains. I don't know, maybe it was just from being starved. But even if I'd complained back then about the cramps and the low-grade headache, about the messy red napkins and the elastic sanitary belt, even though I griped like my girl cousins and school friends, I'd been secretly pleased when I got my period. Like being admitted to some exclusive club you longed, ached, to get into. But that had been taken from me, too. Up till then, even though she said she had Dr. Victor Freisler wrapped around her little finger, Ludi hadn't been able to convince me to organize the supply room. Oh, I knew she was taking things here and there, bandages, ointments for trench foot, that kind of thing. But she was crafty, and she didn't have to rely on stealing from just the infirmary. She had Canada, too. You could buy off an SS Totenkopfverbender, a young German guard, for a half pint of schnapps, or a kiss. It was about a week before my birthday, and Ludi said, You've been eating a little better, and now that you look a little better, Gia, she called me that, a nickname for Eligia, and I'd never had any nickname before. And Rudy, Rudy was one of her swains, Rudy has a friend named Frederick, and he would like to spend a little time with you. I knew who Frederick was. He had blonde hair and green eyes, a grin like my father's. If he weren't German, if he were Polish, I'd have had a hopeless crush on him. Still, he was very good-looking, and Ludi said he was nice. Take your time, Stella Johansen said. She could see I was struggling to get this out. She didn't even glance at the thin bracelet watch on her wrist, to check how long I'd been talking. She was very pretty. 
Even the weak, intermittent, late April sun brought out the golden highlights in her soft, brown, upswept hair. She was so much like Ludi, I thought. Maybe I could tell her everything. Tell her how, without meaning to, I betrayed my mother for a pair of red high-heeled shoes. Red shoes. Red shoes. And a broken tooth. Stella Johansson was so pretty, I thought she'd understand better, more clearly, if I explained about my father and Ruta and my mother. Surely, as a good-looking, grown-up woman, she knew the significance, the importance of physical appearance. When my father disappeared, there was a postcard, I said. Yes, she said, nodding. That was such a low trick the Nazis played, giving those early prisoners postcards, making them say all was well and that inmates could receive packages. The SS got more goods for the Reich. They got addresses of others who would in turn become prisoners. They falsely assured those not yet rounded up that things were not so bad in the camps. All lies and more subterfuge. Stella was right about the postcards, but the one written in my father's hasty scribble also said, I have seen Ruta in the women's camp. I never understood why he'd tell my mother that he'd seen the woman he left her for in 1939. Maybe he mixed up the cards and meant to send that one to his brother or a close friend. Maybe it was a Nazi prank after they'd beaten out of him the names of his colleagues, the details of his life. All I knew was they'd been arguing for a year or more. He told my mother that she was sad and angry all the time. She was no fun. She'd let herself get unkempt, sloppy. Nikluna. He kept shouting at her in Polish. The other nurses at the hospital worked just as hard, and they looked all right. Ruta worked with him in the operating room, and she looked fine. Ruta liked laughing, liked a bit of fun. The war is going to kill us all, he yelled. He was packing his suitcase. And I mean to have a little joy, a little beauty. Before the Nazis kill us all, I am going to have just one summer rose. Turkoiden seinem umre. Just one before I die. I was angry at her. If she'd just fix herself up, I said over and over, maybe my father would come back. Instead, two years later, there was the postcard from Dachau. I have seen Ruta. I don't know what your situation was during the war, I said to the clerk, but surely it's a human desire to look your best, a human right, a God-given right. I seemed to notice for the first time there was a tiny diamond ring winking on the third finger of her left hand. My mother had her chance, but she said it was more important to live to work, therefore to live. Good looks would take care of themselves when there was time that belonged to us again. What happened, Iligia? She's so pretty, I thought. Whatever she may have suffered during the war, she's attractive again. Desirable, she's engaged, happy. But could I really tell her? Tell her that Ludi and I stole three quarter-grain morphine tablets to be exchanged in Canada for a certain pair of real Parisian red high-heeled shoes to be worn on a special date in three days' time? That the shoes were safely hidden, and I was in a fever of excitement when I broke my tooth the morning of my birthday? Should I tell this kindly Red Cross clerk whose life was apparently so tidy? 
Should I tell her? We, Ludi and I, were in the supply room. My confidence was shattered. I had one of the dental mirrors, and I was trying to smile so that the broken tooth, the little dog tooth on the lower left, wouldn't show. Is it very bad? I'm so embarrassed. That lousy bread. If only I'd had a toothbrush or vitamin C tablets, it never would have happened. You can get it fixed later, Gia. The war is almost over. I'm going to dress you up to the nines tonight. Lipstick and everything. My head was swimming. A real date. One of Ludi's dresses. High heels from Paris. Let's take two more of the tablets. You have one. Give the other to Frédéric. He'll think you're a movie star and you'll be feeling no pain. That's a guarantee. As I watched her, she shook out three tablets. But you said two. There was a fierce rattling sound and the door was flung open. Standing there, with the angriest look on her face I'd ever seen, was my mother. What happened, Elikia? Stella Johansson said again. Why did we find you, like the female capos and the SS guards who were forced by the Americans, carrying the dead and flinging them into the mass graves? It was a punishment detail I knew. The guards were made to understand what they'd done all during the war and then just before liberation. Running away, leaving thousands to starve, leaving the dead unburied. The Americans rounded them up and brought them back. What happened? Do you remember? But I could not tell her that I stayed mute when Ludi turned my mother in told the doctor my mother, a nurse, a healer, had been saving other mothers by stilling the lives of their newborn babies. I could not tell her that just two days before the camp was liberated, I saw my mother's face there among the heaps of bodies no one had cleared from the gas chambers the frenzied attempt by the Nazis to disguise the horrors of what they'd done all those long years. A final solution. I could not tell her that I knew the war was essentially over, that we'd be free soon, but that I kept quiet to wear red heels and lipstick for my birthday date with the young German who would soon no longer be my enemy. I could not tell her that. I could not tell her I was afraid I'd be beaten, or worse, for speaking up. I could not tell her that I'd realized too late that atonement never makes up for the guilt we suffer, for the sins we have committed. I couldn't tell her that nothing is ever enough to make up for the sin of silence. But we have to try. Pretty as she was, I didn't think she'd understand, really understand, what I felt when I looked at the mounds of thousands of the dead, lifted their sagging bodies, inhaled the terrible stench from the pits, those beaten, starved, shot, and gassed human scarecrows. She'd never understand because I didn't understand it myself. I saw my mother's face, head turned, her mouth in a rictus, her body lying on its side near the gas chamber door. Her work was done. Why, Elikia? she asked again. Above us the sun disappeared behind sudden clouds. I helped bury the dead because it was the human thing to do, I said, and I know that from my nurse's training, from my work in the hospital. Arbeit macht frei. Work can set you free.
End. That was Lisa Menetti's Aubrey McFray as read by Maureen McLean. Maureen McLean narrates the story. She is an Austin musician plucking the bass with acoustic bands, the Therapy Sisters, and a proper cup of coffee. She earns her keep in the courtroom, interpreting real-life terrifying tales from Spanish to English. That will be our show for the evening, Children of the Night. Visit our Patreon page in the links below, and don't forget to like us on iTunes or wherever you found our podcast. Our show is produced by our editor Scott Silk and associate editors Seth Williams and Drew Sebastini. Website designed by Josh Leitze and theme music by Diane Severson. Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.